We'd like to thank Cassiopeia Books for sponsoring Voices and Views. They are located at 606 Central Avenue in downtown Great Falls. Besides being a place to find your favorite books, they also host events with authors, book clubs, and local groups weekly. For special orders or more information, you can reach them at 315-1515. Welcome to Voices and Views on Great Falls Public Radio, KGPR 89.9 FM. Today, I have the honor of welcoming Professor Gail Balfort from the University of Providence to the show. She's a criminal law professor. Gail, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I talk a lot on this show about what I see as the emerging culture of contempt in our society. And I define that as we basically see little snippets about people, oftentimes people we disagree with in social media or, uh, you know, in the newspaper, on the nightly news. And we draw broad conclusions about who they are, what their values are, and generally make a conclusion that they're a detestable or otherwise amoral person. And I think that belief a is just factually wrong and b it creates a a level of vitriol in the public square that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy where people expect everyone to be a a bad person quote unquote right and they treat them as such and then they get behavior back that justifies that and so i think a real antidote to that that i feel grateful for the opportunity to do on this show is to do a deep dive with with the leaders and doers and innovators in our community so that everyone understands how they came to their values, their passions, why they do what they do with their lives. And then we may still disagree, right? But as we were talking about off air, like the great, you know, Judge Ginsburg said, you can disagree without being disagreeable. Exactly. That is the most important thing in in today's society. And actually, the the stuff you're talking about is this instant news that people are getting, that they're believing everything they see on Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat. And the answer to that is to take my class in media literacy in the First Amendment, where, yes, it's a great course that is taught, co-taught between me and a computer science professor. And... We talk about what's a reputable source, what's not a reputable source, and how to find it that Dr. Google does not have a PhD. And there's a thing that came out of, I believe it was Cal State San Jose, which is called the crap test, which is easy to remember, right? And it's it's um, reliability. I don't know it off the top of my head. But, but it's an acronym. Right. And that's how you check for news and that's when you just don't pick the first thing you see and how you can research the news and where are reputable places to fact check things and things like that and i think that's going to become increasingly important so i can't say that i'm on the cutting edge of technology but 
you know, artificial intelligence and this, you know, general artificial intelligence has been really at the forefront, right, with chat GPT and whatnot. And so, you know, I hear, so Sam Altman's a person you hear a lot from on this, right? He He's done a lot of uh, Silicon Valley uh, funding and innovation. And, you know, there's a belief that we could get to a, a point in, a, in the not distant future, right, where the, the sheer volume of really believable content that's out there would make it so that the the, the web is essentially a, a smorgasbord of lies, right? That like not that it's not a problem today, but that the magnitude of it will be such that even you know with the crap test, right, and 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 kind of the best we've got, we can't weed through it, and that is where the gatekeepers will become increasingly important again. I mean, I think... Yeah, Professor Marshall teaches a week on, on the gatekeepers. Um, and the students really understand the bias with regard to gatekeeping in the media. And, you know, the media has always been a problem, but, you know, with this instant news... And these people talking about the law on the news that don't even have a law degree and people believing, where did you, I'll ask a student, where did you get that? Oh, someone said, what's the source behind the someone said, I don't know. And you see how that happens? And this is what's happening to the general public. And that's scary. Oh, it's funny when you'll read sometimes, you know, I just occasionally, I can't say I like fact check every time I, I read or watch a story, but, you know, just for sometimes to humor myself, I'll uh, go look up a supposed, you know, constitutional law scholar or, uh, and you can see some of their, their resumes and backgrounds, right? I mean, they have a, a, a JD, right? They're, they're an attorney, but that's about it, right? <laughs> like, and so... I, I do think we're all going to run into as a society, like, there's something powerful, you know, they talk about the democratization of media, right, that you can't have a monolithic kind of self-censored media, right, that has so much power that there's one narrative, right? And I think we're very far away from the CBS, ABC, NBC, take your choice. Those are the three channels, right? And that's where 90% of Americans are getting their news, right? At least on the TV. But that it's it's kind of gone to that other uh, end of the spectrum, right? And I think this is where... Well, the cable news is mostly entertainment. And I don't care what side you're on. Yeah, I, right, left, in between. It, it's become entertainment. So I really, when I hear of a case or something, I like to go to the local newspaper and see what the local newspaper has to say about it. Or I'll tell my students, you know, go to something more neutral like AP or Reuters because they're just telling the news like Walter Conkright without giving an opinion and I think that that's one of those where we need to come together at some, there needs to be some belief that objectivity in and of itself is a value, right? So I, I think it's funny you say that most of the news is entertainment. I would talk to my parents all the time and say, look, uh, you know, our older listeners, I'm sure will remember like entertainment tonight and like inside weekly, right? If you look at it, it's uncanny how much a cable news show resembles what we would have considered, you know, kind of 
just garbage, right? That like, you don't, again, it, it's just salacious and you go there to kind of tickle your, you know, desire to hear gossip and rumors. But I, I think that, that we don't want to minimize if we as a society of, of, you know, 330 million people really struggle to have any outlets that we can generally, you know, everyone, you're always going to have people on the left, the right, that, that think it's all garbage, this, this is a huge conspiracy, right? You know, you name your boogeyman. But where a really, you know, large majority of people can agree that, like, these are places where we can go and get a general understanding of our world, right? I, I think it's certainly been the first time in my lifetime where I couldn't say that that is true, right? I, I don't, I can't think of anywhere that I would go to and think, okay, I'm getting very little bias. This is just as it's reported. And I always say the one, the greatest bias is not how stories are told, it's what stories are told. And that's something that I think the internet has done that's been very powerful and positive, right? Is that you just have stories that if all the big media companies don't tell it, somebody's going to tell it, and then it can go viral, and they'll sort of be forced to tell you the story, right? But I, I, I don't think we as a society have caught up ethically, for practically, with how to address these really unique conundrums of not only, you know, the immediate news, but so many outlets, and where I do think objectivity as a value has declined. Absolutely. And and my students, for example, um, in my criminal law classes, they have to read these newspaper articles and they have to research what really happened versus what's reported. They have to go get the court documents. So what really happened in this criminal case? Are they just saying the person is guilty when they don't even have the evidence yet? So, and they also, I also make them watch movies and TV shows like Law and Order or CSI, and then they have to write a paper distinguishing fact from reality. I love it. Yeah. So you and see. it's it's fun for them too. But then they learn that this isn't real. It doesn't happen. You know, you put a fingerprint and it, it and it comes up two minutes later. Got a hit? No. It's it's funny. <laughs> it's funny you say that. I hear that kind of people that you know they'll go to and you know thank you to our our police, uh, you know defense attorneys, the prosecutors, all people involved in keeping up this rule of law that is is really foundational to our society. But I think it's people's expectations about like what forensics can do have become very divorced from reality. And so you know you'll have like how do you not have this suspect caught in like the next thirty five seconds? And you're like. I we know. call it the CSI effect, and <laughs> it's been researched very heavily. And yes, I left being a lawyer for 20-something years in New Jersey in 2010, but it was happening back then. And what I would tell the jury in the very beginning was, you know, this is, and excuse me if I'm a little graphic, this is not television. Most cases are actually pretty boring. I'm not having an affair with the judge. No, you know, none of this is happening. You're not going to see all this fancy stuff unless it's a really big murder case you might. 
You're not going to see it. And once I tell them that, they start looking at me. And that's the best thing. And that's how I won a lot of jury cases because I told them like it is. Yeah. Like a lot of this stuff is boring. You're listening to these experts and it's, and you're like, when can I go home? <laughs> yeah. You're setting expectations. Right. So once they realize that, you know, they just have to look at the evidence, I think nine times out of ten they do what is right. Absolutely. If, oh. the, jur- if the judge gives good jury instructions. Yep. And that's... And that's where most appeals come from, bad jury instructions. I tell everybody that if, you know, you have grave doubts about the integrity of the the system, the U.S. legal system, right, go be a juror. And, you know, I mean, I understand that that's part of our service as part of being a citizen, but it's a powerful experience. I, I've served on a couple juries. This was out in Maryland, actually, when I was living in, in near Washington, D.C. And, you know, look, that is a humbling experience. And the way that it's conducted, right, when they're interviewing the jurors is is very powerful. And in theory, right, yeah, there's all kinds of ways that it can get corrupted, right, and the instructions and whatnot. But I, I challenge you to come away from that thinking that this is all uh, a great fraud perpetrated on the American people and that there's no uh, actual legal standards. I agree. Absolutely. I think that's very And people important. don't know that. And I encourage students like the U.S. courts, for instance, puts out some great videos about what does it mean to be a juror? What is the process? And so when people look at that before they become a juror, I think that helps a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I want so we're I want to circle back okay. and kind of start from the beginning because I want our listeners to understand both your life values, career trajectory, and then I want to move into, you know, how University of Providence has been the kind of perfect landing place for you to really, you know, flex your your intellectual legal muscles. So let's start out. Where are you from, Gail? I am from a blue-collar town called Bergenfield, New Jersey. Love it. And I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I got the equivalent of Pell Grants when I went to the State University. I got into an Ivy League school, but my parents couldn't afford to send me. And so I went to a big um, Division One school. I went to Rutgers University and a lot of... My professors there highly influenced me. And that's the State College of New Jersey, right? Correct. Now, I do want, so I always like to get a couple values that you took with you from your childhood. So growing up, lessons you learned either from teachers, friends, or your family that really have served you well in life. Mostly teachers. I took some sociology courses in high school that I really liked and kind of some um, government classes that I really liked. And I had a friend that was arrested for marijuana, which, you know, nowadays we would think it's ridiculous. It was a very small amount. And I had some other friends that were of a different race that um, went home. And the only reason the African-American girl did not go home was because she was... A, african-american i'm like that's not right this is against and everyone's saying gail be quiet and i'm like no this is 
unconstitutional and this and that. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to be a lawyer to help the poor and vulnerable. And also... Um, and when was it? When did this happen? This was 1979. And that's a seminal life experience where you said, I'm not going to allow this injustice. I'm going to yes. get my degree and I'm going to you know, be able to yes. do something about this. And the, the other the other one was seeing the movie Injustice for All with Al Pacino. This is so terrible that I haven't seen that. Oh, my God. It's the best movie ever where he he is like this criminal defense lawyer and he represents all these people and there's a lot of corruption going on and 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 he's just like at the end it's like you're out of order you know and the whole courtroom's out of order and he gets cited for contempt but it, it's really a great testament to our time and even one of his clients um was transgender and this is Actually, a movie from the 1970s yeah and he ends up committing suicide in the jail. And how progressive for back then. And it talks about all these different kinds of injustices in the system. And it was just so powerful to me. There is something, you know, a, a, a little rabbit trail I want to go down off of that, that I, I try to let people know, you know, you got to have things in context, right? Is there so many things I hear, you know, superlatives have really are in fashion in the United States and things have never been harder and things have never been more toxic or worse. And I, I've, I've used this a lot where I say, look, I'll tell you the whole history of humanity in three words, war, disease, famine. It's been a tough run for humanity. Very few of the negative superlatives used to describe American society in the 21st century have any basis in anything resembling objective fact, right? By any standard, we are some of the freest, you know, most prosperous people to ever inhabit this planet. And justice, while still, you know, far off in many cases, and there's a lot we can do bending the arc, we need to, I think, as a whole nation, be a little more circumspect and see how far we've come and not be so doomsdayer about it because it's really, you would think that nothing good had happened since, you know, whatever, the 16, when we, you know, first came over. And, the Star and, Chamber, another great movie with Michael Douglas. See, so we got the movie, <laughs> but, but I do, what are your thoughts on that in the, in the what we see currently, just, and I, I don't mean this, just in the media, I've noticed, let's say over the last 10 years, there is a an emerging just pessimism and crassness in society that simply was not there and isn't justified by any objective change in circumstances, right? I don't think the the life in the United States has become, you know, hellish in the last 10 years. It's the way that we perceive ourselves and the way that we kind of view our lives relative to the ideal that I think has really changed. Well, when I, the homeless, for example, that situation is not new. People think it's new, the way the media betrays it. It is not. As a matter of fact, one of the big clients of our law school was this guy named Mitch Snyder, who started the homeless movement. And what happened was, is a couple years before that, they were basically putting almost anybody into the state 
mental institutions. And there was a big lawsuit against St. Elizabeth's, which ironically is where Hinckley, who tried to kill President Reagan, was to deinstitutionalize the mentally ill. And what happened is right after that, Reagan came into office and he cut all the funding for these group homes and all the stuff. So basically, we just released all these mentally ill people back into the community with no plan and they became homeless. And a lot of Vietnam vets as well, a lot of veterans with PTSD and, and Mitch Snyder was the leader of that movement and he went on hunger strikes and, and things like that. And well, so I, 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 we were very pessimistic back then. We thought the world was not, you know, it was horrible to be an American back then, you know, and it isn't any different than it is today. I represented people that protested in front of the South African embassy against apartheid. I actually got to meet Nelson Mandela because, yeah, my professor in college was his lawyer and he helped rewrite the Constitution. So... You know, we represented, but all the protests were peaceful, except, and this is funny, and I don't know if my listeners are going to like this or not, but a bunch of my friends in law school to protest the, the apartheid in South Africa, because you have the right to peaceably assemble, right? They decided that they were going to throw a thousand cockroaches over the White House lawn. And I said, well... I'm happy representing the people and getting them out of jail and making a statement, but I'm not going to partake in that. But I thought it was hysterical at the time. Is that violent? I don't know. That's a good legal question, right? right? Yeah. Is that, so that's up to interpretation. They only got charged with misdemeanors and then they dismissed it. But we thought it was hysterical at the time, but I did not partake. Absolutely. And I, the, the, what, I guess what I was is trying to kind of pull out there is that since that time, right, by any objective measure, so if we look at, you know, income disparities, right, we look at education disparities, we look at things like rates of interracial marriage, right, all of those have improved immeasurably since like the 1970s, 1980s. I mean, Absolutely. the gaps are, the, you, you're living in a different universe, right? In the positive, right? Things have gotten much, much better. Attitudes, any survey you look at, and yet to hear a lot of the narrative, you would think not only have they not improved, they've gone backwards, right? That we are back in like 1910 Jim Crow South, right? And that there's no opportunity for minorities and women are oppressed in every place and the glass ceiling is impenetrable. It couldn't be more false right like it and and so i i get all this from there's a great book that i i have pointed out to so many people i can't even count called factfulness and it i haven't read it sorry no it, it's it's a way to it pushes back on sort of the the doom and gloom so for instance you know you'll have people that'll say oh it's never been harder for kids today and you do want to say like well first off like childhood's really like a, a concept that came about in victorian england right like they were just little people and they worked like everyone else well look at the child slave laws that got overturned that's what i was just we saying we used to have orphans i mean god what we did with our orphans was barbaric and that's not like and they would a thousand send years them, ago. No. And so 
it was pretty bad. The the kids in the early in the early twentieth century that that were working and and being basically indentured servants until they overturned those child labor laws. And one in five, one in five kids in the early twentieth century in the United States died before the age of five. Correct. That another thing that they did, if you ever go to New York City, is a great museum called the Tenement Museum. And they have different families from different cultures that lived in this horrible place. And back then, and they were poor. And back then, okay, so the milk in New York City would come down from upstate New York. By the time the milk got to New York City, it was spoiled. But they would send leaflets and they would put chalk in it to make it look white. And they would send leaflets out saying it was okay to drink this milk. And all these kids were dying. But it's just another example of people not knowing how to research things. Yep, 100%. And there, it was probably hard to find the the information, right? Absolutely. And I think, so, because I always, I'm just a person that, like, I, I try to, you know, and I, I, I like to think I'm not, you know, just a, a naive and, you know, just always, oh, just bright and shiny when the, you know, the world's falling apart. I, I just don't think that's the case. I don't think that our current uh, perception is, is based on any f- changes in reality, right? That it's our way that we view ourselves and our expectations. Like something that I talk a lot about is, well, if you compare the United States to your utopian dream of what humanity could be, you're going to see that it falls very short of that. I don't know that that exercise is always helpful, right? Is that you also need to compare it to what we've seen among humans, right? Like I always say, like, if if you read, I, you know, I've read the Communist Manifesto. I've read a lot of these they are really powerful, the ideas. They simply don't work when applied to human beings. Right? A- <laughs> like, absolutely. I always say that. They're like, there's so many things that sound great, but they don't pass the crucible of experience. And that's why history is so important. People have to take history. They're not teaching enough history in high school. I had a student that didn't know what the Holocaust was. And you want to talk about, you know, the slogan is never forget, right? Yeah, and it, it's really amazing that they don't learn civics anymore and they don't learn all these things. And They're one, and I guess that's to all of our and as a matter uh, of fact, Sandra Day, parents out there. You can teach it to your kids. Right, but former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor started this organization called iCivics. That is amazing. That has lesson plans. It has games. It, it it is phenomenal for learning civics, but they're not teaching it in in school anymore, and they need to teach it more. And we could go down a, a long rabbit hole on this. That I, I I do have some experience in kind of the education world, right? And I was a teacher for a couple of years, but more so from an academic perspective, and a lot of the well intended. Uh, but negative consequences that come out of people may not even really know it these days, but there's no child left behind, right? And the idea is standards. I'm 100% behind standards. I think they're integral, right? If we if we have to have a common understanding of how our kids are doing, you have to have a standard, period. Like, that's just the only way to do it. There's no reason that we shouldn't be able to have kids in New Jersey, right, 
operating by the same standard as kids in Montana or Texas. It's not curriculum, folks. I always, everyone would always say they're trying to teach us how to tell us how to teach our kids. It's like, no, they're not. It's basically everyone needs to be able to find the main idea, right? That's a standard. Everyone should be able to, you know, divide. That's a standard. It's not how you teach it or anything to do with curriculum. But by getting that through, it did emphasize what is tested, right? And really, that's math, you know, reading, writing, writing, and oh science, my god, and science. And so all the civics went out, history went out, and the other ones that I think I hear from a lot of people, right, is music, uh, the I know arts, the arts, and 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 that's why I teach it. A liberal arts institution because the students have to take a variety of different things. And I let's jump into that. So I want to make sure that we really cover UP and and so because I am a big believer in two things that you mentioned that I want to highlight. Right, is the importance of history. You know, you hear you know, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Right, and those who you know control the past, right, control the future. Right, that's like. Those are really important things that I think we're we're losing as a value, right? So much of what I talk about uh, it, societally is like, what are our values here, right? Like, that's the underlying, I don't care, left, right, uh, whatever your no, values is a society. No, we treat people fundamentally with human dignity. Yeah, and we I, treat people like humans, whether they're in prison, whether they're different than us whether they have disabilities, whatever. We pe- treat people as humans with human dignity. And that, so that gets at my- Which is one of, which is part of our mission at UP. And that's, so that's, let, let's tell you, my favorite, one of my favorite quotes, right, is you don't judge a, by a society by how it treats it best, it's how it treats its worst, right? And the one that I think of there, you know, I, I, I have sexual abuse as part of my life history, right? And you think of Mine people well. who abuse children, right? Oh, that's the, you can't get any worse than that. That person's entitled to a defense. That person's entitled to a rigorous defense because that's what rule of law societies do. Nobody is excluded from the liberties without due process of law. And that's what differentiates your society, not how you treat, you know, your saintly people, right? Well, in my law career, I decided that I was going to commit myself to have to defending what I call the working poor. Mm-hmm. Okay, so poor people can get a free attorney. Rich people can afford whatever they want. But those people, they're working full-time at Walmart. They're making minimum wage. They're living paycheck to paycheck. They cannot afford to get a lawyer. They don't have the extra money, but they don't qualify for a free lawyer. So I never made a lot of money because, you know, I do a divorce for 500 bucks and this and that. And same thing with if it was a misdemeanor, I would do it for like 300. If it was a felony, I'd do it for a thousand, you know, things like that because they just didn't have, they're living literally paycheck to paycheck. And I I dedicated my life to helping that group of people. So that's something that I just want to kind of give listeners something food for thought is looking at at quintiles, right? So you break down the United States into quintiles of income. And I think we really need to understand how much 
it is this these middle quintiles, right? The second and third, meaning so you're in the 20 to 40 percent, 40 to 60 percent, how hard life is for them and how much our system really benefits the extremely wealthy, right? I mean, you think about like low interest rates, right? Like even recently the Silicon Valley Bank, you know, bailout, right? Why would you do that? You know, they say it's systemic risk. Well, it's always systemic risk, right? But at the end of the day, you had people that had uninsured deposits that are all billionaires, right? You know, I mean, I forget the average deposit number and they gave it all to them for free, right? It, the system is not built around that that 20% to 60% that are working. So they're working. These statistics I looked at, this will boggle people's minds and I'd love them to fact check me on this is that so the the bottom quintile, right? When you look at their earned income is much lower. It's very low. It's like $6,000 or something annually. But one thing that the they I think is a real gap in our statistical, you know, kind of compiling these is they don't count non-cash benefits. And so, like, you would receive Medicaid, right, in that in that income cohort, which is an extraordinarily valuable service, right? Absolutely. And so, but you could go, that list goes on, right? I mean, if it's not cash, it's not included. So these, these guys did a, a view of it, and they saw, and they said, look, really, if you look at the bottom quintile in their real income, the value they receive, they make more money than people in the second quintile. The right, second and quintile has earned income that's like thirty six thousand, but their loss in benefits makes it so that they actually, in terms of in their pocket value that they get, I mean deductibles are crazy for is insurance. Lower. And I think that that's something that everyone needs to be aware of. Right? Is that I, you know I'm, I think I'm speaking to the choir to some extent, but I'll tell you it's not reflected in the way our policies are built. Right. Our policies benefit really, you know, a lot of the people at the very top that one. And I grew up in that working poor, lower middle class, but paycheck to paycheck family. There is a belief, I think, that our safety net is very weak in the United States. From all the statistics that I see in terms of real things like spending on various welfare programs, right, on education, that's not true. It doesn't hold up to statistical analysis where you see the United States falling behind like a, a Western European peer or something and what's driving a lot of the income inequality, right, is the gap between like the 20 to 60 in the United States versus in these other countries, right, is that they're just not doing well, right, that that's where you start seeing the median. And I, I think that we would have a, a more honest political debate if we didn't just focus on we've got one side that's saying we what we need to do, you know, is – tax the the rich and build up our social safety net and the other side saying well government doesn't work we just need to unleash free enterprise and you know that's going to be trickle down and everyone's gonna... we need to be thinking about something that takes into account that the broad swath of our people are not at the very top and they're not receiving benefits they're in the middle and are we building an economy that supports them right and how I mean are... they are literally working paycheck to paycheck you it's know it's like do I go to counseling or do I pay my rent? Because they haven't met their deductible for mental health yet, which should be the same as their deductible for regular medical, but it's not. We, we talk a lot that mental health is health care. 
Absolutely. And so I, I want to now get on okay, sorry. to, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I don't want to, you know, mm-hmm. pigeonhole us, but I do want to make sure we talk about uh, a big proponent of, of UP. I think University of Providence is a, a cornerstone institution of our community. And so I just want you to talk first about when you came to University of Providence uh, and then tell us a little bit kind of, you know, you've had experience in many academic settings and whatnot. What sets it apart? What sets it apart is the low, the small size of classes and the opportunity to get to know your professors. Whereas if you were a big state university like I went to, you never got to see your professors. And we can, so I can have a criminal justice major that's really, really super quiet and timid and they want to be a police officer. And I know by their sophomore year that this is not a good career for them, but they may, might make a great probation officer. So I say to them, why don't you try an internship with probation and see if you like it? And lo and behold, they do. And so I think that's it. So I'm, much, I'm more proud of my students that don't do well in the beginning. And then they become these superstars by the time they graduate and they blossom. And I love to watch them blossom and things like that. Well, what I say is you can tell that's when the university has provided value. We have about a 94% placement rate in my major um, in terms of kids getting jobs in their field within a year. Wow. Repeat that again. We have a 94% placement rate of students that graduate that get a um job within their field in a year the key thing there is in their field right in their field (laughs) and so not all criminal justice majors want to go into law enforcement a lot of them want to work with victims a lot of them want to work um help um the missing and murdered indigenous people a lot of them want to work with at-risk youth i call it the touchy-feely side of criminal justice and we have those courses at-risk youth, child abuse and neglect, victimology, restorative justice. We were doing restorative justice at UP before anyone in America knew what that was all about. That's so give give our, our folks a couple sentences, because I think still the general population may not really understand the, the theory behind restorative justice. So describe that. So to restorative justice basically is to make the victim whole. And have the victim participate in the process. At the same time, helping the offender. So let's say some juvenile throws a brick through your window, right? That's a misdemeanor. It's not a felony. Should we put that kid in juvenile detention? Or would it be better served if the kid mowed your lawn for a year? I would say I'd take the lawn mowing. Or... Or snow removal. The same thing with Martha Stewart. Okay. She was offered a diversionary program where she wouldn't have had a record at all and declined it. Was it really worth our taxpayer money to put her in this, you know, country club prison for a year? No. She could have been starting homeless programs in the jails in New York City and teach culinary arts 
to those people. That's what restorative justice is about. It's a different way of thinking. And the whole community is involved. It's not just one person. And usually it's for minor offenders, but it's also a process and it's based on Native American traditions where, where they go in this circle to try to heal the victim, even with something horrific that has happened. Yep. But the victims always, it's voluntary. And I think that's because, look, we you talk a lot, there's theories of punishment, right? Right. And one of them is retribution, right? I mean, right. there is, it's a, a expression of society's outrage at this heinous act. But I, and I think that's something to keep in mind when people, you know, will kind of get all up in arms about this restorative justice. Oh, well, you can't, you know, they're getting off. Is that in most cases, it is something where the victim is participating. Absolutely. So if you look at, for instance, um, Gabby Giffords, who was a, you know, she she got shot when she was doing an outside town hall and a bunch of other people got killed, including a judge and a little girl. And the defendant in that case, three federal psychiatrists said he was not competent to stand trial. And in that case, he got, he did not get off, even though he was insane, he got life without parole to be served in a special secure prison for the mentally ill. But all the victims participated and agreed to that sentence. Yep. That's the way it should be. And I think that that's process matters, I think is what that gets at, right? That mm -hmm. we want outcomes, right? And that's the end, you know, is outcomes. But there is a, a level of credibility and there's a way that can restore through just the process, right? It doesn't mean, look, the person ended up life without parole in prison, right? But the process allowed for some restoration among the victims. Exactly. They knew that this person was, you know, early onset schizophrenia and he had to be, he actually had to be forcibly medicated even to enter the plea agreement. Yeah, to even be kind of cogent to stand and, mm -hmm. and do the pleading. So what I want to really get to here is... You, would you like me to tell you about all the internships we have? Yes, that's what okay. I want to get to, the, so, the full spectrum UP. So when I first started in 2010, we had three internships in the criminal justice department. We had the police, the sheriff, and the juvenile detention center. We have now about 40 different internships. Students can do their internships here, or they can do them in the summer back home. Okay, so I have connections. You know, I taught at Rutgers I, for nine years. I, I have part-time, but I have connections all over the country. I have former students that are detectives with the LAPD, whatever. Anyway, so I had one of my students was, was Native American. He was from a reservation in... Um, Arizona. So he actually did an internship with Navajo police. Yeah. Wow. A lot of our students want to go to law school. And so they do a lot of internships here. We've had it, students that have interned with, with the federal prosecutor's office. We've had students that have interned with JAG on base. We have students that intern with DCI, the Division of Criminal Investigation in Montana, which is very prestigious. 
We have a federal internship with federal probation where they actually get sworn in as a federal probation officer for the semester and they actually do real things like bail hearings and um, sentencing recommendations. In the fall, we're going to be starting an internship with the U.S. Marshals. We have actually, you know, probation and parole, juvenile, adult, all that stuff. And we're just in started talking with the FBI. Wow. So I'm a really good schmoozer and I can make it happen. So our students, um, one of our students interned with Victim Witness for a year. And she had a job before she graduated working with juvenile victims in um, Nevada, which where she's from. So our, our, you know, young folks or parents, maybe, you know, anyone that could be interested in college. And right? whatever they want to do, I can make it happen. That's what I was going to say. And and that I, I want to, can you give them a flavor of the various courses that would be available to them to put together a major in, in criminal justice? Okay, so we have different concentrations in criminal justice. We have obviously the law enforcement concentration, and it's very hands-on. So they teach... Um, crime scenes and how to interview but we also have a course in ethics and um ptsd and how to prepare yourself for that and then i teach courses in restorative justice community programs victimology hate crimes all these other things that are current so students can go into all these different areas i had one student um, that's from California. She wanted to work with immigrants at the border. I had a friend I went to law school with. That's all she does is immigration law. She did her internship with that law office when we was working with kids at the border. Well, I would say just for someone, you know, I, I graduated from George Washington Law School in 2011. These would be great internships if you were in law school. Absolutely. So I can say that that's, that's a And big, I did uh, some great internships in law school. But I, that was, this is really cool that these are undergraduate students doing these internships. Yeah, and they're doing real stuff. And um, the students that um, intern with the Highway Patrol, they're getting to do more. And so then they're fast-tracked, so they get promoted quicker, and they go into the big investigations quicker because the Attorney General Fox really loved our interns. And then I want to get an understanding. So we talked a lot about that it's a liberal arts school, right? right. And I think that... I certainly had a liberal arts education, and I think, you know, it's intangible. You know, some people will say, oh, we need to get them right into, you know, the, the technical skills stuff that's going to make them money, right? And, look, that's all well and good, and I think there's a place for that, right? I do think Our there's also— Our students get both. I was, there you go. It's so not a get, either or. Right. So they get the hands-on experience. They, they can also do—so a lot of students want to go to law school as well. So not all the students— and then we have a social justice concentration. We call it a corrections concentration, but we're changing it to social justice because that's what it really is. And we have psychology and sociology students that minor in that and vice versa. So can you give And our... also we have a CSI intern concentration for students that want to do that. And that's crime scene investigations, right? Yep. And then we have real forensics. We're one of the few universities in the tri-state area that has real forensics as a degree. I will tell you this, I'm 
authentically and legitimately blown away by <laughs> how robust the, the criminal justice program is. And something I want to know, too, because I, I do, let's say I'm a person and I know I, I want to work for probation or I want to go, you know, work with immigrants at the border, right? But I've got other interests. So what are the I, other areas where you could take courses in? Basically, like, what does the university offer all over in all their programs? So we also have, they have to take a fine arts, they have to take writing, of course, and an upper level writing. They have to be, they have to take math and statistics. They have to take philosophy. They have to take history. They have to take a social science. They have to take an experimental science, all those things. So they're very well-rounded. And the most important is most of the professors in these areas teach critical thinking which is what most employers want. And that 100%. is the biggest thing. They want students to be able to figure it out on their own. So I show a video to my child abuse and neglect students where there was a big investigation in Maine because it's a long story anyway. And then, you know, Frontline came in. But there's this girl, and she's right out of college, and, and she's a CPS worker. And they're filming this live in the documentary. And they say, here's a stack of files. And she's like, what am I supposed to do with these? They're like, figure it out. And then they're like, oh, the next day, it was like her second day on the job, you have to go to court and ask to have this child removed. She's like, I don't know, figure it out. And so being able to think on your feet and critical thinking and research is so important. 100%. So I can, my joke on oh, that is. We teach is, human trafficking too, is a big thing at the university that students are interested in. I'll start taking, uh, I'll start Googling stuff in front of someone. And I think most people get it that it's like, you know, like, how do you do such and such? And I'm Googling it, right? Where it's like, I don't know either. I don't go ask somebody, I Google it. And it's one of those things that it's like, you know, it's I do, we do, you do. And it's learning these skills that are essential in any field, right? It, taking initiative, being able to take things you don't understand, right? Not need a lot of hand-holding, but to go there, churn through it, find solutions, do it independently, come back with a work product that meets the needs of, of you know, your employer. I have student, many students that they offer jobs right away. There, I had one student that she's a detective. She's only been with the police department three years, and she had three different offices waiting for her when she graduated. Yeah, and so I can say now. Do you, could you say how many people are in the program total? Now I would say about fifty students. See, and that seems so perfect. So you get a real, and, and how many professors? Both adjuncts. We have and... two full time, and we use about three adjuncts. Yeah, so I love it. So you thinking about you have like. Oh, uh, ten to one, right? Exactly. Our our intro classes are capped at twenty three, and usually our upper level courses are about a dozen students or less. Wow! And as some, I can just say as somebody that went to a big law school, right? Much less undergrad. My undergrad classes, you know, you'd have in an intro class five hundred yeah, people. Yeah, I used to teach those intro classes at Rutgers. And now I just say that there's essentially no value to that vis-a-vis -vis just taking it online. There's nothing, like, I can say that I think the real sweet spot now is that with the profusion of online classes, if you're not doing one-on-one, -on -one, if you're not having a robust classroom experience, there really is no value add 
versus an online course? Well, I also teach about half and half online. And we have this um, program, it's called Collaborate. And the students, it's almost like a Skype type of, or a Zoom kind of thing. And so the students can watch the lectures of the students live, or they can come in and be part of it whenever they're available. That's the And flex. I reach out to my online students because how can I give a recommendation to a student that I've never spoken to? Absolutely. Why? Well, and I say this is one for our students. I always tell people you got to have your three. Start getting them early on because you're always going to need three recommendations. If you ever think about jobs, universities, whatever it is, there's three references, three recommendations, and it's never good to go the end of your senior year and say, hey, Professor Balfort, I know you never heard of me. I took three of your classes, but I'm applying for this. Could you write a recommendation? Maybe, you know, you might do it, but it's going to be the most it's generic It's not going to be ever. the same as someone that I know really well and I can really speak. Well, they kicked but on their internship and this and that and the other thing. And, and I, I just, I, I, I hope our listeners take away the value of a small university. And we do service too. That's they have molding citizens, right? Yep. That's, to be better people and to give back to the community and also help the poor and vulnerable, right? Yeah, I mean, and that is, so what, I know it's a, you know, it's a uh, religious institution, right? And what is the uh, kind of order that it came out of? Oh, the Sisters of Providence. That's what I thought. And so uh, it's very intriguing. And is that kind of woven into a lot of the... That's woven into the mission and all that. And they help the underserved and underprivileged. And they work with a lot of trafficking victims, Obviously, they're involved in a lot of hospitals and things like that. But they, these ladies, oh my God, they were like trekking cross country to come here, like the 1850s by themselves, you know. And uh, the Sister Providencia, who was amazing, she was here in the, I believe, 60s and 70s, and she was a sociology professor, and she would go and teach the Native American kids, and I feel- and tutor them. That's like the perfect way to kind of wrap it up is that you have this opportunity to go to an institution, right, that has small class sizes, great opportunities to get real world experiences, and also kind of has this great tradition and in, in inculcating throughout all of it these values of service and to really mold uh, your, you know, whether it's your child or you're the, you know, the student yourself into a, a full human being. Right, that, and be able to treat other people with human dignity. That's m the most important thing. Perfect. Gail, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. It was fun. Yeah, thank you so, so much. You're welcome. You've been listening to Voices and Views on Great Falls Public Radio, KGPR 89.9 FM, and that was Gail Balfert, a criminal justice professor at the University of Providence right here in Great Falls, Montana.
Thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about KGPR, please visit our website, kgpr.org, where you can find a link to donate, links to all of our other locally produced programming, and information about your local voice, KGPR Great Falls.